0: mainly concerned with the last Schneider Trophy contest of 1931, especially with the supermarine S-6As and Bs and the way we cope with their handling characteristics. However, I feel that I should first explain how the contest originated and then outline briefly its history. In 1912, Charles Schneider, a wealthy French sportsman, specially interested in the development of seaplanes, offered a trophy for international competition to that end. The offer was made to the Aero Club of France, who accepted without hesitation. The main rules were to be as follows. The contest must take place over the open sea. The distance must not be less than 150 nautical miles the competing aircraft must be seaworthy. The trophy was for annual competition, and the country, winning three times out of five consecutive contests, was to become the final owner of the trophy. And this is the Schneider Trophy. It is a beautiful piece of bronze, and is described as the winged figure's speed kissing a zephyr recumbent on a breaking wave, into which the head of Neptune is worked. The first contest was held in Monaco in 1913. There were several entries from France and one from the USA, but the only competitor to finish was Breville for France in a defundacent at 45.45 miles an hour. Here he is at the top of the picture. The lower aircraft is a Newport flown by the American Wayman. He had to retire just after this turning point. The second contest in 1914 was again held at Monaco. The countries represented were France, USA, Germany, Switzerland, and Great Britain. This race was run for Britain by Howard Pixton in a sop with tabloid at a speed of 86.78 miles an hour. Here he is, standing on one of the floats. The second was Bury of Switzerland in an FBA flying boat. His speed was fifty-one miles an hour. Bixton and Bury were the only finishers. Then came the Great War of nineteen fourteen eighteen, and the contests were of course suspended. They were resumed in nineteen nineteen, but at first were not very interesting that of 1919 was ruined by fog and no one finished the course successfully. The next two were flyovers by Italy, who was unchallenged. And the following year, 1922, the trophy might well have gone into the permanent possession of Italy and the Schneider Series come to an untimely end, but for the lone British entry, a supermarine sea lion flown by Henry Beard, who won narrowly at 145.7 miles an hour. There they are, the sea-line leading, followed by Italy's Mackey and Savoia. From then on, speeds went up rapidly year by year, until, in 1926, Bernardi, in a Macchi 39, one for Italy at 246.4 miles an hour. This marked improvement in speed was due to the governments of the USA and of Italy who were the first to appreciate that the Schneider contests were having a great influence in aviation and, by 1923 and 1925 respectively, had sponsored the development of racing aircraft on a national basis. Previous to 1923, all entries had been private ventures. However, the British government at last followed suit and, in 1926, authorized the formation of a Royal Air Force high-speed flight. Racing seaplanes were ordered as part of the air ministry's program and selected pilots went into training at Felixstor for the next contest which was to be held at Venice in 1927. The aircraft designed for the contest were one short Crusader, 500 horsepower Bristol Mercury engine, two Supermarine S5s, 900 horsepower Napier-Lion engines, and three Gloucester Fours, also with Napier-Lion engines. The team was as follows, right to left, squadron leader Leonard Slatter, the team captain, flight lieutenant Kinkhead, Webster and Worsley, and flying officer Schofield. Britain's final selection for the race were the two S5s to be flown by Webster and Worsley, and one Gloucester 4 to be flown by Kinkhead. The Italian entries were all McAfee's M-52s to be flown by Colonel Bernardi and captains Ferrari and Guazzetti. Britain was Italy's only challenger. The early stages of the race gave every promise of a desperate struggle, but as as it progressed, the Italians dropped out one by one until only the British aircraft remained in the air kinkhead also retired in the sixth lap with air screw treble thus the only aircraft to finish were the two s5s the winner flown by webster at 281.65 miles an hour and the other by worsley at 273 it was then decided to hold further contests every two years and that the next one would take place in Great Britain over the Solent in 1929. On this occasion, Britain's only challenger was Italy. For this contest, Great Britain had built two new Supermarine S-6s fitted with Rolls-Royce engines of 1,900 horsepower and two new Glosser 6s Fitted with Napier engines of fourteen hundred horsepower. Although the Gossage Sixes flew well, they never established reasonable reliability, and so one of old S fives was preferred to the race, along with the new S Sixes. Italy had two Mackie sixty-sevens and one Mackie fifty-two. A tandem engine Savoyer was also brought over, but it wasn't flown. Here it is. Note that the pilot sits between the engines. The front one a tractor, of course, and the rear one a pusher. Here is the full British team from left to right. Flight Lieutenant Waghorn, Flying Officer the Moon, the engineer officer, Flight Lieutenant Darcy Gregg, Squadron Leader Oliver, the team captain, Flight Lieutenant Stainforth and Flying Officer, actually. Both teams were very popular and had numerous visitors. I wonder if you recognize the special visitor in this picture of the Italian team. From left to right, lieutenants Cadringer, Monti, and Canaveri, the Prince of Wales, Colonel Berlusconi, the team captain, Warrant officers Dale, Moline, and Agello. The final selections of race were, for Great Britain, Waghorn and Hatchelay to fly the S-6s, and Darcy Gregg to fly the S-5. For Italy, Dale Moline to fly the Mackie 52, and Cadringer and Monte to fly the Mackie 67s. Race day was perfect, with sunshine and blue sky, and the public seemed to fill every square foot of the beaches and promenades around the Solent. They expected great things and weren't disappointed. Waghorn went off first, and his first lap was a tremendous thrill because his speed was so much greater than anything ever seen before. Waghorn was followed by Dalmaline, but his Mackie 52 was obviously much slower than the S6. The struggle between Dalmaline and Darcy Gray, who followed in the old S5, was perhaps the most interesting of the day. Dalmaline narrowly winning their personal race by only one-tenth of one mile an hour meanwhile waghorn after lapping with admirable consistency completed the course successfully cadre was on his way now in his new mackie 67 followed by actually in the second s6 and monty in the second mackie 67. but bad luck dogged this trio although putting in a record lap of three hundred and thirty-two Point four nine miles an hour in the fourth lap and completing the course actually was disqualified having failed to round a turning point on his first lap. Kendricker was forced to land on his second lap having been almost overcome by fumes from the engine exhaust entering his cockpit. Monty also had to come down as the hot oil from a fractured oil pipe was scalding him. Despite the serious situations in which they found themselves, both Monty and Cadringer got down safely. The final result was, first, Waghorn in an S-6 at 328.63 miles an hour, second, Dal in a Mackie 52 at 282.2, third, Darcy Gregg in an S-5 at 282.1. The 1929 win generated great enthusiasm in the Royal Air Force, and when nominations were called for for the 1931 team, there was a large number of hopefuls, including myself. However, it was not until December 1930 that anything happened because Britain's finances were somewhat shaky at that time, and the government of the day decided against staging the contest. Although there was great disappointment at this, the public would have accepted the decision but for one, Lady Houston, who offered £100,000 towards the cost. Her method of approach to the government was quite dramatic, she sent the following telegram to the Prime Minister. To prevent the Socialist government being spoilsports, Lady Houston will be responsible for all extra expenses necessary beyond what Sir Philip soon says can be found, so that Great Britain can take part in the race for the Shire Trophy. The press made the most of the telegram. One cartoonist portrayed the Prime Minister as the winged figure and John Citizen as the Zephyr recumbent on the breaking wave as in the actual Schneider Trophy. The whole story was handled well and so rallied public opinion that the government finally gave its approval to entering a team and staging the contest. Approval, however, was not obtained until early in 1931. Consequently there wasn't enough time to design and construct an entirely new type of aircraft. It was decided therefore to base the design of the nineteen thirty one aircraft on the S six, the winner of the nineteen twenty nine contest, and the Rolls Royce Company promised to extract another four hundred horsepower from the nineteen twenty nine engine. Although they had only a few short months for development, Rolls-Royce carried out their promise handsomely and increased the horsepower from 1900 to 2330, albeit with a life of one hour only. And this short life was accomplished only one month before race day, and then only after many a failure on the test bench. At the same time, an order was placed for the Supermarine Aviation Works for the supply of two new aircraft to be known as S-6Bs and to modify the two old S-6s, after which they would be known as S-6As. The same engine installed in the S-6As as well as in the S-6Bs. Supermarine's chief engineer and designer was Reginald Joseph Mitchell and he also rose to the occasion. The the successes of the S-5 in 1927 and the S-6 in 1929 were due largely to his brilliant work, and he was again to succeed with the S-6B as will be described later. The whole world now knows of his ultimate success, the Spitfire of the Last World War, and there is no doubt he was one of the greatest aircraft designers of his time. He was a charming man, and it was a great loss to his many friends as well as the whole aviation world when he died at the early age of 42 in 1937. Meanwhile, Squad Leader Orlebar was appointed team captain as in 1929, and the following pilots from whom he would select his race team assembled at Felixstowe. Here they are, from left to right, Flight Lieutenant Hope, Flying Officer Brinton, who was also a Lieutenant Royal Navy, Flight Lieutenant Long, Flight Lieutenant Stainfall, Squadron Leader Ollibar, Flight Lieutenant Boothman, and Flying Officer Snaith. On my left is Flight Lieutenant Dry, the Engineer Officer. There was one other pilot flying off Sir Leach, but it was not available when this picture was taken. Stainforth was in the 1929 team. Boothman and Long were fairly old hands, and Hope had had a few trips. Brinton, Leach, and myself were newcomers. Unfortunately for them, Brinton and Leach were dropped, because it became obvious that our meagre resources and aircraft made it impossible to train more than one new pilot in the limited time available we went to Calshot in may and the only thing that then mattered was to get ready for the race in september the aircraft immediately available to us were one gloster 4 and two supermarine s5s these 1927 veterans were invaluable for our early training Naturally enough, some of the old joints creaked a bit and occasionally gave us a problem or two. The following remarks regarding a flight in the Gloucester 4 will illustrate what I mean. I quote from my old logbook. Extraordinary flight. Took about two miles to get off. Eventually rocked it off. At intervals of about eight seconds, propeller... Felt as though it fluttered badly. The whole aircraft shuddered. Need I add, I was down again in seven minutes. <laughs> Here's another entry about S5219 Serious trim up behavior at low air speeds. During the floating period before touchdown, I had to push the stick forward until it was at the full extent of its travel by the time the floats touched the water these experiences were perhaps good for us in keeping us on our toes to get on with the complement of aircraft we had the 2s 6 in july note the launching pontoon and the 2s6p's in august let us look at an S-6B in more detail. It was a wire-braced monoplane with cantilever tail unit. The wing surfaces, top and bottom, were water radiators, as also were the tops and sides of the floats. Oil coolers were fitted to the sides of the fuselage and also along the center line underneath. The oil tank was in the fin. The whole aircraft was virtually a flying radiator small torpedo-like shapes were fitted to the ailerons and the rudders they were static balance weights and were vitally important i shall talk about them later with the exception of a three and a half gallon header tank all the fuel tanks were housed in the floats the port capacity was 48 gallons the starboard 110. The difference in weight was intended to counteract, as much as possible, the effect of engine torque. Fuel was pumped up from the floats through the float struts, to the header tank which fed the carburettors. The header tank contained enough fuel to feed the engine for the duration of a turn when the centrifugal force exerted was sufficient to break down the suction feed From float tanks to pump. I will deal with the airscrew later. But to return to the flying story, at the end of the contest, each of us had flown about 12 hours in high speed aircraft. Little flying was possible when the few aircraft at our disposal uh, required special maintenance and could be operated only in very good weather conditions and so we had the frustrations of those days of at last getting one or two aircraft serviceable only to find weather conditions unsuitable and vice versa perfect conditions for flying but all aircraft unserviceable occasionally an aircraft was about to be launched when a large atlantic liner would heave inside disturbing seriously a previously perfect take-off surface. Here is George Stainford with the Gloucester 4 in just such a situation. However, frustrations apart, the most suitable conditions were a combination of good visibility, a gentle wind and short, sharp, choppy water with no white horses. The water condition described gave the best turbulence behind the float step. Two conditions we had to avoid were: 1. A flat calm, because it is not conducive to generating turbulence behind the float step. Moreover, a flat calm is often associated with mirrored surface, which makes it impossible to judge height above the water. And 2 a swell because it is impossible to counteract porpoising in such conditions our aircraft were rather slow compared to those of today. the fastest did only about 365 miles an hour in normal level flight but they were very much faster than anything we had ever flown before Apart from adjusting our ideas in relation to speed, there were other factors to be taken into consideration. For instance, the pitch of our airscrews was fixed. Variable pitch airscrews had not yet been produced. It will be appreciated that a coarse fixed pitch airscrew designed to fly at 400 miles an hour will not do much more than beat the air at 4 miles an hour and in addition will have a terrific torque reaction as a matter of fact the air screws designed for nineteen thirty one never got us off the water i remember squadron leader aldebar testing the first one when he opened the throttle to take off he found it quite impossible to control the swing in fact he narrowly missed the barge one hundred and eighty degrees behind him (laughs) we actually had to fall back on the 1929 air screws to illustrate the limitations of these air screws let, a, let me describe what was undoubtedly the trickiest maneuver of all the effect of torque was our main concern especially in the s6s as engine power was increased so the left float was forced deeper into the water and this, coupled with forward movement, dragged the aircraft round to the left. With those two forces to contend with, the start of the takeoff had to be at least forty-five degrees out of wind, and full right rudder had to be applied and held on. If all the pre- all the preliminaries had been coordinated nicely, the aircraft accelerated to a speed at which the airflow over the rudder was just sufficient for directional control by the time the aircraft had been dragged round into wind. But there was more to it than that. The noses of the floats tended to dig into the water and produced, if unchecked, a porpoising movement which was more spectacular than efficient. This particular problem was resolved by holding the stick hard back throughout the whole of the takeoff. Kept in this position, the porpoising, with luck, might not start at all. Then there was the final unsticking, which was the most critical phase in the whole take-off operation. When the aircraft eventually unstuck, it did so quite suddenly. It leapt off the water and into the air at a pronounced angle, and in a partially stalled condition. It was virtually hanging on its airscrew. The attitude was so pronounced that it was the hardest thing in the world to resist an impulse to push the stick forward, but it had to be resisted. If we failed in this respect, the aircraft fell back into the water and we ran into really serious trouble. The whole maneuver was complicated because many a time we had to take off blind, our goggles having misted up or become covered in water. The landing also had to be watched carefully. Since there were no flaps and the aircraft was exceptionally clean, deceleration was very slow. On the other hand, the wing loading was high and the stall critical. Consequently, the only safe way to tackle the landing was to accept a very long hold-off just above the water. The landing wasn't all that difficult but one had to be a bit careful and also to be quite sure beforehand that the alighting path was clear of obstacles because one traveled a long way before coming to rest. It was impossible to see straight ahead because the nose of the aircraft, which was quite high even in level flight, kept getting higher in relation to the horizontal as the speed dropped and as the angle of attack increased. Actually, the heels of the floats touched the water first. Every flight had a definite object. We recorded all our observations on a an knee pad, and when we landed, discussed every point with the rest of the team and so pooled our experiences. Here are the observations I made after my first flight in an S6A. Three quarters of takeoff satisfactory. And goggles got covered in spray. Actually got off fairly well, but almost blind. Left rudder heavy, slightly tail heavy, tightened up in turns. Left wing low, turns got tiring. Had to throttle back shortly after takeoff, owing to rising water temperature. Landing okay, but much too short. Was thinking of impending wash from a ship ahead. Those observations were typical of a first flight. You will have gathered that we were confronted with a difficult problem of rigging our aircraft to fly accurately over a much larger speed range than ever before. We eventually got over this difficulty by fitting duromin strips, while one about one inch wide to the control surfaces these strips while adequately stiff under air loads were easy to bend and relieved the pilot of any permanent control bias when deflected in the appropriate direction there was also some longitudinal instability to cope with but we got over this to some extent by placing lead ballast in the noses of the floats in regard to temperature control it should be understood that although the entire surfaces of the wings and the tops and sides of the floats were covered with radiators, their capacity for cooling was quite was not quite adequate. Top speed was therefore governed by maximum per- permissible water temperature. My statement in regard to the impending wash from a ship was very much in our mind since it was this condition which caused Freddie Hope's accident when landing on S-6A. He hit a ship's wash and was bounced into the air about thirty feet. The aircraft cartwheeled into the water, but to our relief, Freddie was soon seen to be clear and swimming strongly. He had, however, burst an air drum which put him out of the team. Freddy Hope's accident created a vacancy, and Jeremy Brinton was brought back to take his place. But this proved to be a sad move, because he was killed, trying for the first time to take off an S.E.K. I was sitting in a motorboat nearby and saw everything. Jeremy was obviously caught out by the attitude of the aircraft when it leapt off the water. He probably pushed the SIG forward impulsively to rectify this attitude, and the aircraft came down again, bounced to a height from which nobody could recover, and dived straight in. Inevitably, there were lots of incidents. On one occasion, squadron leader Olibar was testing a new SIG-B. He seemed to be flying quite comfortably when suddenly, at full throttle over Calshot Castle, the engine stopped, and he landed miles away, off the Beaulieu River. What had actually happened was that a flutter had set up in the rudder, which he was unable to control. It was not until the speed had dropped to under 200 miles an hour that the flutter stopped. Fortunately, he still had a little height to spare, and plenty of sea room, and he made a good landing. When the aircraft was towed back, fuselage plates were found to be buckled just in front of the tape pane. with this evidence in front of us a lot of hard thinking had to be done flying was stopped and all the experts came to help us with the problem it was solved by mitchell himself he mass balanced the rudder and ailerons by attaching bob weights to levers projecting from the leading edge spars of the control surfaces until the required balance was obtained this was a mass balancing to which I referred when describing the S6B in detail I nearly came to grief in my first attempt at taking off the S6A. although I knew the rule about holding the stick hard back I had found on the Essex, on the S5 that I could with advantage let it go forward just a little and I tried this out in the S-6A. How wrong I was! I found myself porpoising all over the Solent in a most terrific way without getting airborne. I kept on with this deplorable exhibition until high-speed motorboats came came out from Calshot and stopped me. I shall never forget what happened afterwards. Besides being wet through with spray, and being inexpressibly miserable at having failed my first big test, I had the awkward task of having to explain to my team captain how I thought I knew better than he. After listening to my story very patiently, his only observation absolutely shattered me. All he said was, Child, his personal nickname for me, you shouldn't have done that. What a leader! No wonder all of us had the highest regard for him. I was involved in another incident when flying the S6B, with which we retained the trophy only five days afterwards. I had taken off towards the Isle of Wight and was over land at an uncomfortably low altitude when the engine cut out. Fortunately, it came on again, but continued to keep on cutting in and out. After about the third cut, I was over the water again and prepared to land if necessary. After about the sixth cut, the engine failed to come on again, and I landed off-ride amongst a crowd of sailing boats, all of which I missed, more by luck than by judgment. On examination later, it was discovered that some new fuel we had been testing had choked up all the fuel filters, and we had to modify them immediately. You will see then that every flight was really a test flight and that we got ready only just in time. Incidentally, the press were very cooperative about my forced landing. They gave out our story that I had run into rain clouds and fearing that the airscrew would be damaged had landed where I was as a precautionary measure. Actually, it was a lovely day with ten tenths blue sky We did a good deal of experimental work on turns, the object of which was to determine a good compromise between a sharp turn which gets around a corner quickly but loses speed rapidly in doing so and a wide turn which drops the minimum amount of speed but takes longer to do. At the conclusion of the tests, it was established that the minimum time lost in a turn was achieved by accepting a load of four g. Having ascertained the best G, we practised turns, the circumferences of which were only just included the turning pylon. As the weeks went by, the public became increasingly interested in our activities, and all sorts of people came to see us. Amongst our special visitors were Sir Henry Rice and Lady Houston sir henry seemed to know everything about our problems and in talking to him one was left in no doubt as to why the name rolls royce had for so long been synonymous with perfection you see him talking to squadron leader Audubon myself lady Howston was also a great person but for her foresight and bold intervention britain might not now have permanent possession of the trophy and she might not have won that all-important Battle of Britain. And now we come to the time when decisions were made in regard to the choice of pilots, not only for the race, but also for the attempt on the world's absolute speed record, and the following was decided. George Stainforth should go for the record. John Boothman, Frank Long, and myself were to be the race pilots. Immediately after these decisions were taken, Boothman, Long, and myself carried out the last important flight before the race, the full load take-off and landing. Previously, we had only carried sufficient fuel to last us for a 20 to 25-minute trip, but the full course took about 50 minutes, and there was also a take-off and landing to do immediately beforehand. The haul weight, therefore, was much higher than usual. Naturally, the take-off took longer, forty seconds in my case as against thirty the time before, and I confessed to a feeling of relief when I eventually unstuck. And then came the landing. The normal approach speed was one hundred and thirty miles an hour, but since the wing-loading was at the maximum, we had to come in at about a hundred and seventy. This meant that we had to take extra care. But all went well with each of us, and then all we had to do was to wait for race day. However, shortly after this we had most disappointing news. France had had to withdraw from the contest, and soon afterwards Italy followed suit. Both teams had had serious accidents and technical troubles and were unable to compete. You will remember that we also had had our troubles and got ready only just in time. It was then decided that instead of the British team racing against each other, one aircraft only should fly over the course. The altered plan of action was as follows. Boothman, to fly an S-6B and to go all out for a high speed, keeping, however, within water temperature limits. If he failed, then the next to try would be myself in the one remaining s 6 to fly strictly on the water temperature gauge. No chances to be taken with overheating. Speed had to be considered as of less importance than finishing the course. If I failed, then the final attempt would be made by Long to fly the second S6B with instructions similar to mine. At last we came for the great day, Saturday, 12th of September, but it was quite unsuitable for any sort of flying. Note the umbrellas. It was raining, blowing almost a gale, and the sea was very rough, and so the event was postponed until the following day. Sunday, the 13th of September, was a lovely sunny day, and we were quite ready with our aircraft number four in the middle was mine and the event took place before a vast crowd of people round the Solent. there some of the crowd at south sea i think and here is the course by midday boothman long and myself were alongside the pontoons from which our aircraft were to be launched and by one p.m john boothman had been slipped from his pontoon but let us listen to his own story. The first flap was flown at full throttle, and the turns were taken rather wide in order that there should be no disqualification. After about one and a half laps, the water temperature started to rise above the maximum allowed for, and so the throttle had to be eased back slightly for the remainder of the contest. Weather conditions were good, visibility excellent, and over the sea the air was smooth, but near South Sea, for the course was slightly inland, bumpy air was experienced. Bumps and high-speed aircraft are rather disconcerting because one experiences a sudden jar that can be felt throughout the aircraft's structure. In view of this, after the fourth lap, I flew out to seaward at South Sea in order to miss these disturbances. After about twenty minutes, the cockpit became very hot and stuffy and I was glad of the breathing tube which led a draught of cold air onto my face. During the fifth lap, my legs began to get slightly cramped owing to the small cockpit. I rested my knees on the side of the fuselage. However, I quickly moved them when I found that the cockpit walls were blisteringly hot and decided that cramp was the lesser evil. During the last lap, the end was still giving the same healthy note, and the aircraft was still flying perfectly. Rounding the last turn, I opened the throttle full out once more for the final four or five miles to the finish, and then a climbing turn, and an amble back to Calshot on about a quarter throttle at 200 miles an hour. With the final closing of the throttle, a left-hand gliding turn, and an alighting the last Schneider trophy contest was over. John Boomman had completed his flight at the new Schneider course record of 340 miles an hour. As he ambled back to Calshot, the reaction of everybody to his success was quite remarkable. All the cars along the promenades and beaches sounded their hooters, and the large concourse of ships in the Solon blew their sirens. It was a demonstration of national pride which one had to experience in person to appreciate fully. The proceedings of the day didn't end with the winning of the trophy. By 4 p.m., the second b had been prepared for an attack on the absolute speed record, which is flown over a three-kilometer course. The pilot was Stainforth, who, although the arrangements were somewhat hurried, was able to raise the record to 379 miles an hour. But the success story didn't end there. Later in the month, with more careful preparation and by superb flying, George Stainforth achieved the magnificent speed of 407.5 miles an hour, a new world record. Thus ended a year of a remarkable achievement in British aviation and one which highlighted the influence of the Schneider Trophy contests in increasing the speed of racing seaplanes. To conclude, here again is Reginald Joseph Mitchell, who, perhaps more than any other aircraft designer, demonstrated that the large amount of time and money spent in the development of Schneider aircraft was undoubtedly well worth while as a powerful stimulant to aeronautical development in many fields. So ends my story of the Snyder Trophy.